Because I hope you have your Bibles. And if you don't have your Bible, there's one right in the back of that pew in front of you. And if you could pull that out and open that up to Mark chapter 1. We're going to be looking at Mark chapter 1, verses 21 through 28. And if you remember, this series is about Jesus. It's about seeing the person of Jesus, spending a summer in the Son, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and looking at Mark the way that he reveals Jesus. And I want to tell you that when I was about 23 years old, I was working as a, as a mental health counselor at a psychiatric treatment center. It was a residential center, so the residents lived there, teenagers. And suddenly, several of the boys, and you, gotta, you, you need to see the layout of this, there's one wing of this cottage for girls, one wing for boys, and in the center, a really, really large meeting room, common room, and suddenly, several of the boys came to me and they said, Tim, we need you to come quick. Rodney is out of control. Rodney had picked up a billiard ball and flung it across the common room and right through the screen of the large TV. I go over there and we were trained to restrain legally, safely, harmlessly. I restrained him. I had him on the floor. And I'll never forget what happened after that. Rodney began crying. And as he began crying and shaking, he began praying, but he began praying to Satan. And he began saying, Satan, I love you. Satan, will you help me? Will you defeat Jesus? Will you defeat this man who loves Jesus? Never forget that. Now, that's a little scary. I mean, come on, put yourself in the shoes here. I mean, I'm waiting for his head to spin around and green stuff to fly. i never seen that before. I'm restraining him. I'm waiting for him to throw me off of him and throw me against the wall. I didn't know what was going to happen, but I knew this was pretty scary stuff. Anything like that ever happened to you? Have you ever seen a visible demonstration from demonic powers? You may not be aware of it, but more than likely, Christian brother and sister, you've seen it. And so I want you to prepare your mind for what is about to happen in the life of Jesus and four of his disciples. You know, the Apostle John, at the end of his gospel, he said this, you're probably familiar with it. Now, there are also many other things that Jesus did, were every one of them written, I suppose that the whole world itself could not contain the books that could be written. Now, you know, the gospel writers, friends, they're editors. They're compiling. They didn't choose every story. They didn't choose every teaching that Jesus ever gave. They chose the ones that would further their purpose in writing. And so why did Mark write the gospel? Well, he wants us to see Jesus, who is the beloved Son of God. He is fully man. Yet he's fully God. He's the suffering servant who came, you're going to see this next week, on a mission to serve, not to be served, to give his life as a ransom for many. But you need to know maybe a little bit more about Mark's purpose. And that is, if you remember from last week, the Christians that he, were, he was writing to were Roman Gentiles. And they're suffering under Nero, and Nero is massacring, and they're hiding, and they're in catacombs. They are struggling mightily, and Mark's gospel is written to strengthen and to help these Christians endure in their faith. 
And in our passage today, when you get to verse 21, it's really, really helpful for you to know that months have gone by since the baptism of Jesus, since the wilderness trial. Listen, that's so far in the rearview mirror of Jesus' ministry, it's past the curvature of the gospel. There's a lot of things that have occurred. One of them being John the Baptist has been put in prison by this point. And Jesus, because things are ramping up and hostilities are increasing, not out of fear, not out of intimidation, but simply because his time to be arrested had not yet arrived, he leaves Judea, that's the lower part of Palestine, and he travels 75 to 80 miles north, back up into Galilee, the region that he grew up in, and we see from the other Gospels that he's made, he made his way to Nazareth. That was his hometown. That was when he was a little boy. Don't you remember he was in the synagogue at Nazareth? And he was preaching. And they didn't like his message. They thought he was blaspheming. They drove him out of the synagogue. They drove him to the city limits, to the cliffs. And they went to throw him over the cliffs. Classic stoning technique. And he slipped through their midst and escaped. Listen, that's already happened by the time verse 21 occurs. He makes his way to Capernaum, right on the shores of the Sea of Galilee. And there he sees Peter and Andrew in one boat. And he sees James and John in another boat. By the way, friends, did you know they're fishing partners? All four of them. According to the Gospel writers, this was a partnership. And did you know that Andrew, Simon's brother, used to be a disciple of John the Baptist? And John the Baptist says that's the Messiah. And Andrew goes to see Jesus and meet Jesus. And he was so excited that he goes to his brother Peter and says, Simon, I found the Messiah. Come on, you've got to check him out. And the two of them did. And then they go back to their fishing business for a while. Until that day that Jesus shows up on the lake. And he says, follow me. And they drop their nets, all four of them. And they leave their father, and they follow him. And they travel, and they're already in Capernaum. That's where they were fishing. And they make Jesus has made his way to Galilee. And I don't know if you know much about Galilee, but if you think Galilee is kind of like the beautiful Adirondack region, sort of backcountry, you know, redneck folk. You know what? That's kind of where I grew up, by the way. Be careful. That's not Galilee. That's really not Galilee. Galilee was a center of social and political and commercial life. It was at the crossroads of major, major trade routes. Listen, you go to the market in Galilee, and you're going to hear Hebrew, you're going to hear Greek, you're going to hear Aramaic, you're going to see Syrians, you're going to see Parthians, you're going to see Romans, and you're going to see Jews. It was a multicultural, diverse melting pot. It was an exciting, trendy, political hotbed. It was alive. It was the perfect place for the ministry of Jesus to explode. And we find out that verse 21 says, they went into Capernaum and immediately on the Sabbath he entered the synagogue. They went into Capernaum. Listen, if you go to Capernaum today, friends, you're going to find ruins you know you know why you're going to find ruins 
Because Jesus pronounced a curse over Capernaum later in his ministry. Here's what he said, Matthew 11. You, Capernaum, will be brought down to Hades, for if the mighty works you, that were done and you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. It did not remain. It is nothing but ruins with a couple tourist sites today. In fact, the ruins of Capernaum stretch a mile a mile along the shores of the Sea of Galilee. It was a large town. 10,000 people or more lived in Capernaum. It was a freshwater lake. It was a prosperous city on the side of a freshwater lake. It was a center for commerce. It was a bustling home that became the home of Jesus, according to Mark chapter 2, verse 1. And it says in verse 21, they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath, he enters the synagogue. Now, you might forget what I told you last week. Remember, this summer series, a little bit different than what I've preached before. We're not going to really be using outlines. You're not going to have three points that I give you. Because Mark writes this gospel, unlike any of the other three gospels, he writes it in storybook fashion. Story after story, narrative style of Jesus Christ. You know, there's only a few teachings of Jesus that Mark even records. It's all about the stories. And so I'm going to preach narratively. So we're going to work down these stories of Jesus to see who Jesus is. And I'm hoping that our appreciation of, our understanding for, and our love for Jesus increases by the end of this summer. They go into the synagogue, and I've got to ask you, at the beginning. Do you really know what a synagogue's like? I mean, come on, don't you think like that? I mean, what's a synagogue like? What would it be like to go to a synagogue service? Is it like this? Is it different? Synagogues came into being when the temple of God was destroyed and the people of God were cast into other countries. And they're sitting in other countries, 450 B.C., and they need a place to meet. They need a place to gather around the Word of God, the law of God. And so they created synagogues, which the word literally means a place to come together. And they were a place for teaching. There was a place for discussion. In fact, the law of God, the oral law rather, not the law of God, the oral law required that any town that had ten or more men, had to have a synagogue. By law, it was required. So you get to Jerusalem in the days of Jesus, and guess how many synagogues were in Jerusalem? It's like going down south and seeing a church on every corner. There were 500 or more synagogues in Jerusalem in the days of Jesus. Listen, it's always been, you don't like this church, just go to the next one. Don't we do that? Lots of synagogues. Lots of places to gather. And their services had three elements to it, friends. They had prayer. They had the reading of God's Word. And then they had the teaching of God's Word. And synagogues were always built, if possible, on the highest ground. In fact, they had a tall pole that was placed on its summit. It would make the building more conspicuous. And they were always built in the same pattern so that any Jew who was traveling could enter a synagogue and feel right at home. 
Men would enter the main door. Women had to enter through a separate door. They sat in a galley at the rear. The men could crowd the front. At one end of the synagogue was a cupboard or what they called an ark. And in that cupboard were the scrolls. They were pulled out by the minister that I'm going to tell you about in a moment and put back by the same person. And in the center of the synagogue, right up front on a raised platform, believe it or not, not too dissimilar to today, there's a bema seat or a pulpit. When Jesus says in Matthew 23 that the scribes and Pharisees sit on Moses' seat, he's referring to the duty to teach God's Word, and the place that that was formally done was in a synagogue on the raised bema seat on the platform. And then you had a chief ruler, and that chief ruler took charge of the service, and the ruler's job, friends, was to invite somebody to speak and somebody to read, and somebody to teach. And if you were called to teach, if I called one of you up because I was a ruler of the synagogue, and I called you up, you would come up one set of stairs, and when you were done teaching, you would descend the other set of stairs. You never descended the stairs you came up. And then there was the position of a minister. So you got the ruler, and now you've got a minister, and his job was to take out the scrolls, put them back, keep care of them. They were incredibly, incredibly treasured, incredibly expensive. And he would clean the synagogue. His job was to blow the blasts on the silver trumpet the, the day of the Sabbath to let everyone know the Sabbath had come. It was time to come and it was time to hear and to listen to the Word of God preached. And then it was his job to take the children and teach the children of the community. And then they would have people that would gather alms because the poorest of the poor was given enough food to last 14 meals, roughly one week of eating. And they would collect those alms at some point during the service. And so you've got the temple of God. Now you've got to get this. The temple of God that is the place for worship and singing and music and sacrifice. And then you've got the synagogue that is the place for teaching and instruction. And if you asked a Jew in Jesus' day, which is more influential on the Jews, the temple or the synagogue? Friends, by far, they're going to tell you the synagogue. And so on this particular Sabbath, the minister sounds the blasts on the trumpet, calling the people of Capernaum to the synagogue. And Jesus immediately, Mark says, enters the synagogue, and the ruler takes this growingly popular, the Gospel says, reports of Jesus, we're spreading all over Galilee. He takes Jesus, this growingly popular teacher, and he invites him up the stairs to teach. And listen what verse 22 says. They were astonished at his teaching. And that might fall a little flat on your ears, probably because we don't really know what the word astonished means in the original language. To really appreciate the force, to really understand, to really grasp the power of Jesus' teaching, then you've got to really understand that that word astonished, if you go back to the Greek, it means this. It means, well, let me, let me give you an illustration. You ready? Don't look at the screen. You're cheating. I can see your eyes. Man, Chris Bougie, you're killing me. What if I came down to say hello to you and I slapped you right in the face? Oh, I would never do that. But what if I did? Well, 
you would understand the word astonished. Because it means to strike and produce panic or shock. It struck them like a blow, like a literal blow. When he taught, it struck them like a physical blow, striking and hitting all the way to their soul. And the word that we're more familiar with was thunderstruck. You know, Harry Ironside, he's the late, one of the late but greatest preachers of our country. After concluding a sermon, this is so funny. You ought to be a pastor for one day, one Sunday. Just be a pastor for one Sunday and enjoy what happens after the sermon. It's really fun. He concluded a sermon and somebody came up to him to greet him and to say to him that he really enjoyed the service, although he didn't really think Ironside was a great preacher. You know, Ironside agreed with him. He says, I know I'm not a great preacher, but what what led you to that conclusion? You know what the guy's answer was? This is a true story. He says, because I understood everything you taught. That's what made Ironside such a great teacher. He could take doctrine, any theology, and he could bring it down to the point where any of us could have understood it, any of us could have grasped it, and any of us could have had the excitement to live it out in our lives. That was what made Ironside so great. But Ironside could not even compare to the teaching of Jesus. See, Mark tells us why they were thunderstruck. Look what he says, verse 22. Listen, the text tells us. They were astonished because he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. Listen, don't you find that interesting? I found that so interesting when I was preparing this sermon. I don't think I ever realized this before when I had looked at this. You see, I would have thought that their astonishment would have been because they heard Jesus teach them information that they never had heard from anyone before. Insight, depth into the Word of God that they had never had a teacher give them before. I was thinking, that's what created their astonishment. I mean, come on, isn't that part of your criteria when you evaluate my preaching or anybody else's preaching that you sit under? I mean, don't you say, wow, sometimes. I never knew that. I never saw that in there before. Isn't that usually kind of the criteria that says that was a good message? You know, I'm sure that the preaching of Jesus was filled with fresh understanding and fresh insight. But Mark says, look at your text, verse 22, he says, what left them thunderstruck was not what he preached, but how he preached. Friends, that's a major difference. It was how Jesus preached that was like a blow to their souls. It was different from the scribes. It all had to do with that one word, authority. You know what? Most of the people in Jesus' day were illiterate. They couldn't read. They sure couldn't read the Hebrew in which the Old Testament was written. Only the scholars could read that. Not unlike the Catholic Church in the 1400s. The Catholic Church in the 1400s, nobody knew Latin. Nobody had a possession of a Bible. Nobody came to church in the 1400s with a Bible tucked under their arm. That's why I tell you every week, I hope you have your Bible 
Friends, you don't know, I don't think, I don't think a lot of us appreciate the fact that you can have a Bible and can read it is so unlike most any other era in the history of the church. Well, in Jesus' day, nobody had a copy of the Scriptures. Number one, they couldn't have read it. And number two, they couldn't have afforded it. They were astronomically expensive to buy a scroll. Even the paper that scrolls were written on were incredibly priced. And so they were illiterate. And so what happens when the common folks are illiterate is this. The one who can read becomes so elevated that what they say becomes gospel truth, which is why I want you to read. I want you to have your Bibles. I want you to take what I'm preaching and go back and check and make sure I'm right. Because if I'm not right, then I need to be corrected. And if I'm not right, you need to forget what I just said. But it elevates the one who can read. It elevates the one with such an authority that what you tell me is coming straight from the the voice of God. And so the position of a teacher and the position of a preacher was extremely important, extremely influential. And the ones who performed the privileged duty of teaching friends, they were called scribes. Did you see that word in this text? Who are the scribes? Well, you could probably unfairly summarize them as Jewish lawyers. They were those, but they did a lot more than that. Most of the scribes belonged to the group called the Pharisees. Josephus, a Jewish historian writing for Rome, says there were 6,000 scribes and Pharisees in the time of Jesus. There's a whole lot of them. Most of them belonged to a group called the Pharisees and friends the scribes that elevated them above the rest got the privileged title of rabbi, which means honored one. A rabbi had their audience sold out to listen to their teaching. And they had three duties. They studied the law of God, number one. I always get asked, what's the pastor do all week? Other than Sunday. I'm not even answering that. It's so demeaning. Secondly, they wrote up rules and regulations in order to keep the oral law. Friends, listen, here's here's what you need to understand is what I've got to understand. The law of God is the written law of God, right? But you could falsely teach that law of God. And the Jews were scared to death of anybody breaking in and with authority falsely teaching the, the law of God. So they built a fence around it. And the fence around the law is called the Talmud. It's called the oral law. And that fence was built by rules and by regulations, 613 of them by the time of Jesus. There were so so many of them that it made it virtually impossible to break in and disrupt and pervert and distort the law of God. And the oral law, that fence became more authoritative than the written law. So when Jesus is on the scene, they're preaching, they're teaching the scribes the oral law in the synagogue, not the written law. It would be like me opening up the text, reading the passage, and then closing the Bible and telling you all about my own philosophy and take on it. Pretty hollow. And this is the situation. And so they studied the law of God, number one. They wrote rules and regulations to keep it safe. It was called the oral law. And then they taught the oral law to the people and they gave judgment in legal cases similar to a lawyer. They had three jobs. 
And they had a particular style of teaching, and now we're going to get right to why it was so astonishing and the differences between Jesus and the scribes. You see, the scribes, friends, now listen, scribes always quoted from another rabbi. In the words of one ancient rabbi, he says, I have never in my life said a thing which I did not hear from my teachers. But Jesus never borrowed from the authority of others. His authority was always in Himself. He may have referenced what the scribes would teach, but then He would say, but I say to you, I say to you means that my authority is invested in me, not in a famous Rabbi Hillel or Rabbi Gamaliel. They were the two most popular in the days of Jesus. He would often emphasize His teaching with the words truly, truly, right? Or verily, verily, which means amen, amen. And when he did, he was attesting that what he was about to say was guaranteed to be true simply because his own authority says it was. Now, friends, I don't know, I don't think I could get this across to you clearly enough, but at least try to understand this was a slap. This was a shocking, panic-inducing way of teaching. Nobody taught like that but Jesus. And even more, the teaching of Jesus was grounded in the Old Testament itself. It wasn't about the oral law. It wasn't about what Rabbi Hillel believed to be true. It was about what God said from the Old Testament. And the people were thunderstruck, amazed out of their senses at his teaching. But here's where it gets interesting. Remember Rodney? Remember that boy in the treatment center at the beginning? Well, there's a Rodney among them. Mark reveals that there was one that day not feeling amazement. He was feeling terror. And verse 23 tells us about it. And immediately, there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. And he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Friends, did you catch the pronouns that the demon uses? What have you to do with us? Have you come to destroy us? Listen, it was maybe five months previous to this event that Jesus goes out and does battle with the demon's master, Satan, and roundly and soundly defeated him. And let me tell you something, demons communicate. They communicate effectively. They communicate well. In fact, listen, nobody, nobody yet in the Gospel of Mark, and there won't be anybody until chapter 8 when Peter says, you are the Christ, nobody knows who Jesus really is but demons. You ever thought of that before? Have you come to destroy us is family language. It says, have you come to destroy not just me, but all of us, Jesus? And then he says, I know who you are. You see, demons know. They have knowledge. Listen, friends, look at me for a second, brothers and sisters. Look at me. Did you need to hear this? Listen, demons know all about you. Don't think they don't. They know all your weaknesses. They know what to whisper in your head to get you to doubt God. They know exactly what carrots to put in front of you to get your heart running after Him. 
They know your strengths. They know your weaknesses. They avoid your strengths. They cater to your weaknesses. Or they take your strengths and remind you later when you fall that a unguarded strength is a double weakness. You think you're strong in one area? You don't guard it? That's a double weakness. Demons know us. They have knowledge. He says, I know who you are, the Holy One of God. And what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? You know, that's a Greek idiom. Or in other words, that's a famous saying. It means this. What do we have in common? Nothing. Nothing. Which was his point. Why are you here? Why are you here to destroy us? We have nothing in common. Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. You know, to really understand the force of this, you've got to climb inside the Jewish mind when it comes to demonic activity. Friends, the Jews believed that demons sit on thrones, they hover around cradles, being able in their superstition to eat and to drink children. They believed that there were 7,500,000 demons all working with feverish destruction against Jehovah and against His people. In fact, in many ancient cemeteries, even in before Jesus, in the time of Jesus and after Jesus, they've unearthed skulls. And you know what's in these skulls? There's holes. Because it was believed that if you want to get a demon out of a person, you've got to drill a hole in their head and allow it to escape. And they know that they were alive because there's bone growth, and bones only grow when you're alive. And they would take that little disc of bone that they drill out of your skull, and then they would put it, if you lived, they would put it around a chain or a necklace, and you would wear it like an amulet in order to, to ward off demonic activity. If that didn't work, they would, actually before they would do that, that was extreme, before they would do that, they would take a foul-smelling root and they would stuff it up a person's nose thinking that the demon would be driven out. By three, some of us probably are thinking, wow, how barbaric. I mean, who would ever think drilling a hole in your head is going to let a demon out? Well, in the 1950s when I was studying for graduate work, we got to see Videos of what they did to schizophrenics. And what they did to schizophrenics was, number one, line them up against a a wall with a fire hose and beat them with water thinking it's going to drive schizophrenia out of a person. This is the Industrial Revolution, and we're still doing crazy things. How about a lobotomy? I used to think a lobotomy had to do with your bottom. I didn't know what it meant until I took graduate work and I said, oh, they're cutting your brain apart. Take your brain and cut it off and then all of a sudden you don't have any emotions and you don't have any emotions, you don't act out in criminal behavior. They were doing that even into the late 50s and 60s. So it's not maybe so surprising to see that when a person is demonically possessed, friends, it is frightening, it is terrifying. You will go to extreme measures to get it taken out of. In fact, by 340 A.D., the Christian church developed a, an order of exorcists within it, which would use elaborate incantations and spells and magical rites. This is the Christian church. And so powerful was this demon 
that the Greek literally, if you translate it literally, it was not, it was not that a demon was in the man, rather the man was in an unclean spirit. Do you understand how encompassing his identity had been absorbed by that, that demon? The man was in an unclean spirit, not the demon was in the man. And he had taken completely the man's identity. And you might be wondering, because if you're odd like me, you wonder these things, what do demons do to pass the day? I actually wonder that. Well, here's what they do. They do the same thing as their master Satan. They operate from the shadows. They're empowered by deception. And the power of the Word of God, friends, is what breaks apart the deception, what brings light into the darkness and shatters the power of Satan and his demons. And this is what's happening. Jesus is preaching, and he's preaching with such authority that the light of God has come into that synagogue on that Sabbath day, and the demon could not hide in the shadows. He was exposed by the truth of God, and he shrieked out in terror. Listen, this is why we don't preach anything but the Word of God. There's nothing else. There's nothing else that has the power to take your strongholds and my strongholds and break them apart. There's no value in teaching a philosophical sermon. There's just no value to it. And listen, when Jesus preached and that demon shrieked, there wasn't a tug of war of battle. There wasn't like Jesus had to really knuckle down and grit his teeth and try harder. He preached, the, the demon shrieked, and Jesus says, come out of him, and he comes out of him. You ever walk into a dark room and flip the light on and then watch a battle between darkness and light go on? Never. Darkness can only exist in the absence of light. Light is infinitely more powerful than darkness. Listen, if you've got shadows of deception in your minds and you're believing lies, then it's the Word of God that's got to shine its truth in your mind and it will set you free. You know, a few minutes ago, we saw that the people were astonished. Verse 27 says they were now amazed. They were thunderstruck at His authority, but after the demonstration of the ultimate power of the demons, they were amazed. And it's a word that means they were shocked at the display of His authority. So they're astonished. They're, they're thunderstruck at the authority in His teaching. And now they're shocked at the display of that authority over that demon. But isn't it interesting? I hope some of you think like me. I, I freely admit I've got a bit of a strange mind. But are any of you wondering the same thing that I was? Nobody's talking about the demon that was just sitting next to them. Come on, if one of you started shrieking, it would freak me out. And it ought to freak you out too. But nobody's talking about this. Read it and find out. Now i got to turn back to the text. Here we go. Look, look at what it says. Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice, came out of him, verse 27, and they were all amazed. But nobody's really talking about, wow, this guy Henry down the road, I used to do farming with him. He had a demon in him all this time. They're not even shocked at that. In fact, listen, this is why. It's because the display of the power and the authority of Jesus is so great that nothing could take the eyes off the people 
of the people off of him. He drew all of their attention. He captivated them thoroughly. Even a guy that they probably knew but didn't know he had a demon, even that couldn't take their eyes off of Jesus. It's really interesting for me to draw out a couple of subtle points that maybe sometimes we miss. The first one's this. The wrong response to give when you see the Holy One of God is to begin a discussion group. Look what they did. And they were all amazed so that they questioned among themselves saying, what is this? A new teaching with authority. Listen, where was the repentance? Where was the contriteness where was the worship where was the falling down at the feet of the holy one of god the demon said who he was the authority of jesus backed up who he was but nobody worshiped him nobody fell down there's no record of repentance they began a discussion group and it makes me kind of wonder how often do we really do that listen whatever whatever pastor you listen to and it's, it's powerful and it's working in your life. You ever been in a service when you feel like there's nobody else there? It's just God speaking through that pastor right straight to you. You ever had that happen? And would you walk out of there different than you did coming in? Or would you start a discussion group and say, you know what, I kind of want to talk about this a little bit. How often do we leave Sunday after Sunday the same way we were when we came, and yet we've seen Jesus revealed in His Word, and we've seen our sin, and we've seen what we need to give to Him, and how often do we not throw ourselves at His feet and not repent and not walk out of here transformed, free, and different? So maybe it's not really that unlike what was happening in Mark chapter 1, because I think we all kind of do it on a regular basis. It's more intriguing to talk about Jesus than to throw your feet at his throw yourself at his feet and worship him. I mean there's a lot of irony in this. The demon shrieks in terror, the sinner started discussion group. And that incredibly inadequate response ought to pull all of us up short. But what about the guy who's free? Have you ever wondered about him? Nobody's talking about him. I mean, this is a guy. Listen, do you know anybody that's been in bondage? Been in bondage? And God has freed you from it? Maybe an addiction? Maybe a deception in your mind and God just one day plucked you out of that, let you out of that prison bar and set you free to live in a way of victory and freedom? Have you ever had that happen to you? And didn't you want to go share that? Didn't you want the community to come around you? Shouldn't the church have come around the guy that was once possessed by a demon and now freed from the Holy One of God? Shouldn't they come around him and say, we love you. We are so thankful for what God has done for you. We want to worship him with you and enjoy your freedom. Nobody talks about this guy. It's like he's invisible. A man is set free to live for Christ and nobody really seems to notice. Fresh off the sermon series of the Ten Commandments, I find that strikingly horrible. 
I mean, we are to love our Lord with all of our souls, hearts, mind, and strength, right? And love our neighbor as ourselves. They didn't have either of those going. How often do we see that happening in our own church? Friends, do you remember in Mark 5, just a few more chapters, you remember that man who was a synagogue ruler, the guy that ministers over the synagogue? His name was Jairus. Do you remember he had a little 12-year-old girl that was dying? Fathers, listen, you know, you know the desperation that would be in your heart if your little girl was dying. And do you remember what Jairus did? He comes to Jesus and he asks Jesus to come and heal his daughter. And friends, listen, I want you to draw a subtle point. Where did Jesus, where did Jairus first begin to have his faith ignited? It was on this day in Mark chapter 1, when Jesus displayed his authority, not only his authority in teaching, but his authority over demons. That he was the Son of God, the Holy One of God. And Jairus, his faith first was kindled there so that when a crisis came, he already had the faith that was there in embryonic form, but it was enough to say, I'm going to Jesus because I think and believe Jesus can help. And it makes me wonder how many people are seeing in us Something that's revealing the Holy One of God and it puts a little spark of faith in their hearts so that when calamity comes and crises come, they've got that faith that will say, I could go to Jesus because this person has showed me how and he's showed me and she's shown me he's faithful. See, sometimes our efforts at the Gospel don't bear fruit for years and months sometimes if we're more fortunate. But they're always planting seeds. And when you plant a seed of the gospel, it's got the opportunity to ignite a spark of faith that one day is going to roar into a flame when God says it's time. Have you seen the authority of Jesus in this passage? Mark wants us to. And he wants us to come to Jesus in faith and believe that he holds all power and authority in his hands. Friends, be amazed at Jesus. It don't start a discussion group and do nothing. Repent when needed, worship at all times, and serve Jesus with all of your life. And that's really the point of Mark 1. You're free to serve. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for Jesus. Lord, thank you for showing us your son, revealing who you are through the person of Jesus. And thank you for Mark, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, selecting these stories so that we could be amazed at Jesus. And our faith could grow because of Jesus. Our confidence in your son would be great indeed. Lord, I pray that we would sow the seeds of the gospel. We would tell people about Jesus. We would love one another. And when one person is freed, Lord, we would all rejoice. We thank you for Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.